Tsapuwakiram Atara Makkaku Sashiamash Ikasuash Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me in Wisconsin is William Annis. Hello. And up in New Jersey, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. I will be in Wisconsin too very soon, uh, but uh, for now I'm still in West Virginia. Mm. We talk about Madison gravity here, so... Madison gravity? Yeah, typically what happens is someone will come here to go to school, and then they'll move away, and yet somehow they'll always end up back here. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're a lawyer or a librarian, it's impossible to find a job if you're a lawyer or a librarian here because of the school, but other than that. Really? Yeah. Huh. Madison is oversupplied with lawyers and librarians because we have schools for those here, and people tend to want to stay if they can. Mm. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, I guess you're not oversupplied with linguists then? I, perhaps not. <laughs> perhaps not. Yes. <laughs> so I did read one thing sort of interesting this week. Back in January, we talked about the Talasan language. Mm-hmm. And the fun part, right, of Talasan is that it's associated with this micronation performance art piece or I mean, they don't call it a performance art piece. That's just me interpreting this thing. Um, and when we did the show back in January, there were three separate entities claiming to be the legitimate representatives of Talasa, the micronation. Mm-hmm. One of them wound down, and then the other two started, you know, kind of difficult negotiations. And just last month, Talasa has reunited. Huzzah! Yay. Huzzah. It's very funny. Um, I have no idea what impact this will have on the language because two of the Talasan entities who've existed since the mid 2000s have been, have worked together on the language in all the intervening time. So I don't know if that will change the language much apart from a funny misspelled word became the standard <laughs> term to refer to their, their reuniting. But I've included a link if anyone wants to go look at the entertaining process that led to a few hundred people uniting a nation. Yes. <laughs> I guess that works. Uh, they can all be happy together. That's right. Um, so, we have a topic episode today. Uh, and today's topic, um, we have something... Very heavy syntax for for you today, I think. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, kind of syntax and discourse. Mm-hmm. Yes. We have anaphora and co-reference. <laughs> so, William, what 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 do we mean by these terms here? Well, anaphora Well, the problem with anaphora is it means different things in different school of linguistics. But the basic idea is anaphora is what entities in your discourse do pronouns refer to. Mm -hmm. I saw the man and then he tripped over a stick. 
we recognize that he refers to the man that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a long running discourse, you have pronouns flying around left and right and computers still have a very hard time determining what pronoun refers to what entity. Um, I, I just saw a number today saying that computers get about a 75% accuracy. Really? And even people, even people sometimes have to have clarification afterwards. Right. Depending on how your pronoun system works, you might need to come up with clever ways to clarify. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is different schemes and systems available to keep track of what refers to who in your pronouns and in your discourse. Hmm. Um, as George has mentioned, it's somewhat syntax heavy. It's a little scary theoretically. Sometimes it can be. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm just going to mention in passing, so we've talked about anaphora, which just means carrying up in Greek. And that refers, of course, to the sense being moved, right? The reference being bound to a pronoun is what they sometimes say, right? I saw the man and he, referring to the man, tripped. Um, but sometimes you can talk about cataphora, C-A-T-A-P-H-O-R-A, and that refers to a pronoun that precedes its referent. Mm-hmm. And you see this most often in preposed subordinate clauses. So, because he was tired, Fred went to bed. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Right, so it referred, the he refers to something that's coming up but has not been mentioned yet. Cataphora um, is a little less common, um, and most of the time people just use the word anaphora to refer to any relationship between a discourse entity and a pronoun, just because... Um, some of the issues are the same, and it, it's not always obvious that you need to distinguish them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and we're talking about this because the different languages have different ways to cope with possible ambiguities, and so we're just going to go through a list of some of them, mm-hmm. um, and and something to think about for your next language. Mm. Yes. So you have a ba- giant list of ways to cope with it. Well, it's not that giant. It's just no, five. It's just, I just yeah. have notes. Oh, that's right. It's it's just uh, five things. The first one not is three. just have lots of pronouns. Now, you say that's the English strategy. What exactly do you mean by lots of pronouns? Even though English does not have grammatical gender, we still have pronouns that distinguish gender. We have he, she, and it, even though the overwhelming majority of our nouns are all it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, she is for animate. Right, for animate. Um, the point of this is there's a value, and, and some other natural languages, which may have no gender at all, also may still have um, third-person pronoun, more third-person pronouns than you would expect, just because it makes it easier to talk about the things we care about. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, half the population, well, slightly more than half the population is women, slightly less than half the population is men. Right, so having he and she makes many kinds of discourse a lot easier because it will always be perfectly unambiguous which pronoun refers to whom um, mm-hmm. if you're talking about a small number of people. Okay. Um, that's all I mean by that. I see. Um, so it's not so much lots of pronouns as more pronouns than you necessarily would expect. Than you might expect. Right. Okay. And, and that's another sort of side effect of gender systems or really complex class systems. Yes. Um, it, it helps you do all sorts of tagging, like in a language like Swahili, you have all sorts of information multiply encoded, and it really helps keep things clear. Yeah. Does Swahili have different pronouns for each of the classes? Yes. 
It doesn't use that. I mean, they're normally bound in, in various ways. I don't think they occur freely very often. And we have, we sh- maybe should mention that English at one point had grammatical gender. And that's why right. we, we basically, I mean, we don't carry over the same pronouns, but we carry over the same structure basically. Yeah. Uh, so it may be more likely that something that had gender or classes at one point sort of has conservative pronouns where the the gender gets lost everywhere else. Right. I right. Don't we know no longer if... we no longer refer to a stone as he. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if if you would necessarily have that just develop out of nowhere. I can't think of any language except English that has completely lost not a uh, noun class. Okay. Wait, no, there's one in Africa that I know of, one Bantu language that more or less lost the whole system. I would have to do some research. I don't think completely losing um, your gender system is particularly common. Mm-hmm. It seems to be very well conserved in in most places. Mm-hmm. Um, although, in the, like in the European instance, in simplified of the Romance languages, right, they dropped from the Latin three to two. Mm-hmm. Um, but and, and that's the great thing about non-semantic gender there is... In English, the instant we talk about inanimate things, we, we have to deal with it all the time. So books and tables and pens and pencils and desks and, and you know, the conception of beauty. All of these have to be referred to by it, whereas in French or Italian, or German for that matter, you have multiple genders, potentially, um, mm-hmm. which gives you another place to avoid ambiguity. Um, so I don't know if anyone's made the argument that it makes discourse easier is a reason for gender to be conserved for so long in so many languages, but it's, it's worth a thought at least. Yeah. Yes. Um, the next thing that you talk about is conjunction reduction rules. Now you mean like where you have two complex things that, eh, what exactly do you mean in conjunction? <laughs> right. Rather than to... make an example, just ask me. Uh, <laughs> right. So I went to the store and bought a book. Right. In in the clause after and, I have dropped the subject. It's assumed that the, in English, the subject can be dropped and is assumed to be with and, and is assumed to be the same as it was in the previous clause. Mm-hmm. Right. The man fell and stubbed his toe. Right. We know it, it's the same subject in both parts. Um, And it's called conjunction reduction, not because conjunctions are reduced, but because it causes reduction in the following clause. Mm. Um, This is one of the reasons English uses the passive. The man walked into the barn and got kicked by a horse. Right. Because you cannot, you can't, you, it has to be the same for it to be reduced. Right. The subject has to be the same for it to be reduced. I mean, there are other things going on with the passive, but it, conjunction reduction plays in with that. Um, now, conjunction reduction is interesting. Subject, you know, same subject assumption with conjunction reduction is very common in nominative mm-hmm. accusative languages. In most of the ergative absolutive languages of Australia, the absolutive is the assumed, mm-hmm. um, is, is what the conjunction reduction can drop, um, which is why you need things like antipassives and inverses. Um, to accommodate that. Um, uh, so you could have in one of the Aus- Australian languages, you could have your, your man and horse example without a passive. You could have 
the man walked into the barn and horse kicked, right? Yep. Yes. Because he's absolutive in both cases. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets hairier when you have a, a, a transitive or two argument verb in the first mm-hmm. clause. But yeah, we, we don't, I've gone over this before. We don't need to hit it again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. It's worth thinking about. I think recently I heard about one language that's nominative, accusative, and conjunction reduction assumed the object, which I thought was a little odd, but it didn't hold me to that. But I don't think it's obviously insane. Mm-hmm. It just seems a little unlikely. Um, and there are a small number of languages on the planet that just hate conjunction reduction and will always repeat pronouns. I went to the store and I bought a book, um, even if the language isn't necessarily conjugated. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some languages of Papua New Guinea in particular uh, tend not to go in for conjunction reduction, but I think it pops up randomly around the planet. Now, um, talking about these what what's assumed, does that also carry over in where there is a transitive verb in the first and maybe the pronoun in the second clause is unclear? Like if you say... You know, John called John called Peter, and he slipped. We assume right. it's, it's more. I feel like that's talking about John, not Peter. I don't know if that's because of the nominative nature, you know, nominative right. accusative of English or what. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. That's just the, that's the default assumption in English. The subject is conserved. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. But but you're right though. Interpreting a two, you know. You know, Bob talked to John and he was angry. Could be a little confusing. Yes. Yeah. And that's the whole point of this discussion is it is confusing exactly. and computers fail. We <laughs> often have um, subtle sort of baked in knowledge and common sense knowledge will often lead us in the right way, which is why computers fail this so hard. Mm. <laughs> um, because you have to understand what's going on in a deep way to bind pronouns because some interpretations simply make no sense. I've always argued that we'll never have, um, we will not have, uh, as good as human machine translation until we actually have, um, artificial intelligence, like true artificial intelligence, because the computer has to actually understand the language in order to, translate properly yeah I, I don't think necessarily you need an intelligent computer what you need is a, an enormous database of common sense knowledge right that it can use to check its assumptions against or check possible paths of interpretation and you know um uh, exclude unlikely possibilities well it should also be able to learn i think that would be helpful. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know that that's as important. If I mean, there are a few projects that have these vast, terrifying ontologies where they try to encode all common sense knowledge in the world. Um, <laughs> there's there's a, a psych CYC database, which is huge and vast, which, um, you know, makes this, uh, which has been in development for a long time. It's a company in Austin doing this. Um, and what they do is they have people entering data and then it thinks about the data and asks often ludicrous questions the next day that you have to answer <laughs> yes or no to, to help it refine its knowledge. <laughs> uh, the, uh, yes, but that common sense is culturally dependent, but that's a totally different discussion for a different. No, things like sense. things like it has to learn about sneezing and it has to verify that, you know, humans only have two nostrils. 
<laughs> okay, that's kind of universal. Um, right, that is fairly, yeah, fairly universal. So, I mean, the point is, that, right, this is a tough problem. And, you know, this is not a show about you know, computer translation, but um, this is why, I mean, this is something, but I think it still bears mentioning you don't need to come up ironclad perfect rules with nice syntax trees explaining how an aphora resolution, that is, determining co-reference of your anaphora, works. You don't need that. Common, mm-hmm. not common sense, but understanding the world and how the world works often clarifies this. Yeah. Right? And- what you need, what you need is a way to clarify when the situation is too ambiguous. Yeah. And I think basically what, what happens in real life is that people ask clarifying questions. And that's too. Yeah. And they might say he who. Yeah. Right. Or if you're writing, people just, uh, get really, are, are really, uh, focused on making their meaning clear. So they, they choose the constructions that are least ambiguous. So, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's all depends on how, what, and so even if there's a possibility for a very ambiguous construction, usually there's, something that will mitigate that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go on. The next thing you mentioned is Logophore. And yes. your example he says he said he, he went said to that store. he went to the store. Yes. Is he one the same as he too? He said that he went to the store. We don't know. In it English, without context, <laughs> we have no idea. Right. Um, Logophore is a system where you have separate sets of pronouns for um, typically subordinate clauses mm-hmm. that says either this is the same referent as the superordinate clause or it is a different reference as the superordinate clause. Yeah. Um, so that in a language like Ewe, which is from Africa, where Logophore is far most common, um, he said that he went to the store, there would be um, an extra pronoun that's different for the subordinate clause, which would clarify. Meaning uh, that he's not, meaning that the, per, the he he's talking about is not himself. Right. Right. Mm. Um, and the extra pronoun could go either way, right? Your default pronoun, like, so he said that he went to the store. So he said that pronoun, he, um, depending on the language will either indicate same subject or different subject in the subordinate clause. Mm-hmm. Right. Different languages. We're going to go different ways about this. Um, but the point is you have an extra set of pronouns clarify. So it's not so much, so it's not so much that you'll have a, a pronoun for subordinate clauses, clauses that'll have two different forms, but you would have, you could use the normal pronoun or this special subordinate pronoun that is either indicating logophore or anti-logophore, indicating right. whether it's the same, that it's the same subject. Or indicating that's a different subject. Right. It's not like you need three pronouns for he. Right. Yeah. Right. You'll have he, and then you'll have, a, you know, extra he. And depending on how you've made your decision, extra he is either the same as the normal he, um, or, or refers to the same one, or it refers to different. It's pretty straightforward. It's like a marked um, form. Yeah, right. There's a separate marked form, and depending on the language, it will either be same or different subject. Mm-hmm. Um, in in lots of languages that have logophore, it's restricted to indirect discourse. Mm-hmm. 
but it doesn't have to be. Now, with, in English, when you say like he saw himself, is that himself kind of similar? I know himself is uh, it's it has to be bound like that. You wouldn't say if you say he saw him, you wouldn't assume it was the same person. Is that right. kind of the same vein? Um, I don't have the theoretical chops to answer that question. In the generative tradition, anaphora only means that. Mm-hmm. Um, that himself thing. Yeah. But I, I'm going to punt on that and say I don't know. Someone smarter <laughs> than us can tell us. Yes. Someone smarter than me can I tell mean, us at any. That's technically called a, that's a that's a reflexive that you're talking about, and I'm not sure if you could really um, say the same thing about reflexives that you say about this in subordinate clauses. Now you said indirect discourse. William, that right. this is commonly restricted to indirect discourse. Um, just to clarify, what exactly do you mean by that? Like an example. Oh, right. When you're reporting what somebody else is saying. So that's why I actually use this example. He said that he went to the store. Okay. So it's. So typically it's, only subordinate clauses after verbs like say, tell, ask, stuff like that. When you're reporting someone else's speech. Yeah. That makes sense. It's probably the most common thing that will cause confusion. Yeah, it's a very common... Right, that, that is the nexus of confusion. That's why these examples are so common in the literature about this subject. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, but you don't actually have to have this. It's just a, one example of something that you can use. You can, just as English does, leave it totally ambiguous and have people find other ways... I think in um, English language writing, often you end up with uh, just somebody will use a name for one of those. Right. Yeah, that's that's probably most common. I mean, like I said, there are many ways to deal with this issue. And my list today is just to cover some extra possibilities beyond um, what you might have been, many of our listeners may have been exposed to so far. Right. Like, um, I don't know a single conlang that uses logophore. There might be one or two of the African model ones that do. I didn't. I should have actually gone and checked. So there might be some Akana ones that have the more um, Central African flavor that might actually use Logoform, but I didn't stop to check. Well, well, maybe somebody will make one. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, um, so far, we've been talking about Logoform referring only to the subject. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Mupun language, which is a Chadic language, has a fiendishly complex system of logophore that encodes both subjects and objects and uh, some extra twiddly bits that might involve mm-hmm. the addressee somehow. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously this, this system uses more than I assume it uses more than just indirect discourse logophore. Uh, I would imagine because indirect yes. discourse is not common enough. It's the, the, the confusion in indirect discourse is not common enough for you to end up with that many different, uh, Pronouns, I don't think. I would, I would, I would hope not. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, anything else about Logophore? Uh, no. Um, I don't think I can really add anything to that. Uh, okay. You have switch reference, too. Yes, the next one is switch reference. Um, this is... This mostly occurs in nominative accusative languages, so I'm just going to say that. Um... And what switch reference is, is when you have some sort of overt marker um, occurring in subsequent clauses, typically, that mm-hmm. says, is the subject the same or is the subject different? 
This like is like part article? of the previous clause. Well, the morphology is pretty um, broad. There's all sorts of things you can do. It can either be bound to verbs. Mm. Um, it might be bound to conjunctions. It might be an enclitic that attaches itself to the first word of the following clause, whatever that first word happens to be. So there are multiple possibilities mm. in terms of the morphology. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorites are, for whatever reasons, I just think it's cool, are the systems that have parallel lines of conjunctions. Mm-hmm. One for same subject, one for different subject. Um, I Somewhere I read that the conjunction or has never been seen with switch reference marking. Hmm. Whereas and is, you know, is a prime candidate. Yeah, um, so like uh, the Wikipedia has an example from from uh, Washoe, yeah. which looks, it, it looks like you actually put it on the first verb. Yeah. And it's, uh, it has the example, uh, you eat, I will drink. And it's sort of uh, the word, the, uh, the verb to eat takes this marker sh, and right. that says the next verb has a different subject. Right, and that's huh. a really common thing yeah. is for the switch reference markers to occur at the boundaries of clauses. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that is phonologically part of the next clause or the previous clause varies from language to language. Mm-hmm. But and then you, uh, like you said, there's also the they also have an example of the uh, the having a different conjunction in uh, Kiowa is. They yes. just have a different, the different words for and, basically. Right. And a whole bunch of conjunctions. They may have mingling lists. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do a Google search on Swiss reference, you'll find a few good papers and some of them will have nice lists and examples you can play with. Um, Switch reference, once you get it in your language, tends to be very systematic and mm-hmm. thorough, mm-hmm. even when, strictly speaking, you don't need it. Right. I went to the store while he went to the party is perfectly unambiguous about same subject versus different subject because we've used entirely different pronouns. I versus he. And yet once you get a switch reference system, it tends to be pervasively used. Well, that makes sense. It's sort of once, once that distinction is made that you just, you make it obligatory. Right. Um, Like the, the examples we're showing, we're talking about on on uh, on Wikipedia. All the examples they're giving. I guess there's one that's ambiguous, but the the others are unambiguous, actually. Right. Right. That's interesting. And and a small number of languages um, maybe are early to the world of switch reference or whatever for whatever reasons constrained it. Only use it when with third person reference when it's when a, an actual possibility of ambiguity appears. Uh huh. But that's less common than you might think. Um, it can, uh, I guess we've said this already, either both subordinate and coordinate clauses, um, mm-hmm. will take switch reference marking of some sort. Um, what else was I going to say? I'm just going to skip the ancient Greek example because it will be too hard to explain. <laughs> uh, uh, I was going to say, sometimes your switch reference system might operate at a larger discourse structure than simply sentences. Right. If you have a clause A and then a clause B and then a clause C, it's entirely possible for clause C to have switch reference marking relating it to clause A 
Hmm. Um, and this is related to discourse stuff, or possibly you might have, you know, you know, Bob ran to the store so that he could buy peaches and talk to the checkout clerk. Right. So <laughs> both of the sub clauses joined by and would use, um, same subject marking referencing the, the superordinate clause. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you might want to think about that a little bit if you decide to go to the switch reference system. Speaking of um, discord, like co- um, pronouns that are applicable for the whole discourse, sign language does an interesting thing with, uh, I guess, pronouns, where the first time you introduce one, you set up a space, uh, an area in the space where you're, you know, in front of you, and that yeah. area becomes the person. So if I'm talking about, like, I saw Bob, and then I point somewhere in the space in front of me. That space is serves as kind of a pronoun meaning Bob. But then if I say, then Mark called, and I point somewhere else, and I can use those two areas of space as sort of distinct pronouns and use them in the physical language of, you know, American Sign Language. And it's pretty nifty like that. That it is pretty nifty. Yeah, yeah. that's great. It's well, it, I guess that comes from third-person reference in... in uh, ASL is just just comes from is just you point with your index finger, right? But, Typically, unless you're talking about like uh, possession, but yeah, as far as just base pronouns, yeah, it's index finger. Possession is open hand, oh, palm. Yeah, but what if the person's right. not present? Yeah, Ooh. well, that's that's well, that's mm-hmm. what Mike was saying is that norm if the person was there, you would you you would point at them, but okay, that since they're the not there, the the okay. you just actually. You actually point somewhere in the in the air. That's an interesting. That's a very elegant way to deal with it. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of sign languages do that. It's not something you can necessarily translate into yeah uh, spoken language, but it's, but it is very efficient. Yeah, when you're telling stories, it makes it great when you're ta- when you're reporting speech that you're not a part of, and you might say like you know Bob said to Mark this. You you actually can use you know, potentially like infinite pronouns. I mean, sure, you're not going to have like 20,000 pronouns in the same sentence, but I mean, you could have seven different people talking and you're mm-hmm. very clear about who's talking to whom depending on height and where you point in the space. It's, fin- it's fantastic. See, now I want to, I'm going to have to look up some papers to see if there are fixed patterns to how you chew through that space. Like if you start on the left and the right and mm-hmm. switch maximally to anyway. So mm-hmm. I'll, I will do that later. Yes. Um, Anything else about switch reference? There are just a bunch of different systems, and we don't need to go through the details. I mean, we've covered mm-hmm. the, the basic outline. Um, a, a very, very small number of languages will also have switch object, you know, switch reference systems for objects, mm-hmm. um, which are rare enough that I did not find a great deal of data about them. But again, I didn't spend huge amounts of time looking. The subject is usually what's going to happen. I think it's all often going to be all of a lot of these are going to be biased toward uh, making the subject clear because people care most about the subject and then the rest of the sentence follows from there. Sure. And clarifying the subject um, very often will disambiguate other parts of the discourse, other parts of the mm-hmm. sentence. Well, that's mm-hmm. what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. It'll disambiguate. Um, well, like, I think honestly, I still am not, don't have my head completely around what switch reference is. I could probably do a whole episode on it, but, um. I'm guess I'm sorry. Go on. But I think people really need to kind of read up on it on their own a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
my guess is that it's kind of like Mark saying, this is not the one you think it is, that other one. Is that kind of... <laughs> right. Like, I mean, typically, yeah. I mean, tip, I mean, for those systems that are either enclitic particles or marking on the verb, mm-hmm. you will have a zero form, which will default to some meaning or the other, either same subject or different subject. And then you will have some morphine, which is the marked one. Um, my impression is different subject is somewhat more likely to me the, the, is to take overt marking. Um, but I, d- I didn't find numbers on that, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so why don't we move on to the last thing? And this is something that we've mentioned before in other episodes, maybe in response to an email question or something, but obviation. Yes. And we had the guy who sent that magnificent invented language for the donkey beating story also used mm-hmm. obviation. That's true. Um, so obviation is a really neat trick where you have a third person pronoun and a fourth person pronoun. Uh-huh. And you pick one pronoun to represent the center of discourse and that's called the proximate. Uh-huh. And you use the obviative pronoun for everything else. What do you mean the center of discourse? Like the main character? Who who is most important mm. or what is most important? Yeah. So in let's let's Talk about the uh, the donkey beater story because that was a great example of it. Um, he made the center of discourse the donkey beater, the that yeah. character, um, yes. and he did all sorts of uh, different uh, voice tricks in order to make sure that he that guy stayed at the center of discourse, so that he could use proximate for him and obviate for any other character in the in the story. That's that's basically what what the thing is. I think this the interesting thing about obviation is in order to use it, it's it has to be used at a discourse level, and you have to um, it it sort of manipulates the discourse a, a bit when you use it because you have to keep something at the center in order to make things unambiguous. Right. Um, and you need a way to, uh, signal that you've switched the central thing, the, mm-hmm. the, the central, the central thing. So once you have obviation is it tends to involve your entire nominal and pronoun system. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the Algonquin languages, proximate is unmarked is the default. Whereas obviatives, whether it's an obviative noun, whether it's an obviative pronoun, an obviative demonstrative, um, has some special marking, mm-hmm. uh, which also um, presents itself in the verb system, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the polypersonal agreement in the Algonquin verb system also shows up in the in the in the obviation system. So it's very pervasive, um, and I don't know how you would make it work neatly if it weren't. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for real fun, apparently. Blackfoot, which is another Algonquin language, has two obviatives, according to some scholars, at least. Now, how does that work? I have no idea. I couldn't find examples. And the one Blackfoot textbook I have at hand apparently disagrees that there are two obviatives because it doesn't talk about them, really. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's that's (laughs) a curious one. Right. So effectively, you have a third person pronoun, a fourth person pronoun, a fifth person pronoun, right? You just keep going on. And it starts to get into the land of 
the ASL situation where you have a large space, which <laughs> depending on your visual acuity can be chunked up pretty detailed, <laughs> um, pretty detailed ways. Um, mm-hmm. But probably it would be a little inefficient in spoken language to have a dozen pronouns just to keep a story straight when you can just say a person's name, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, in those languages that have obviation, it can interact with animacy in very complex ways, right? Inanimate, um, inanimate things don't get to involve themselves in the system in some languages. Okay. And this makes sense because most of the time we care most about people and sometimes animals right. that we're interacting with, right? Random inanimate objects are, you know, important, but we're typically not telling stories where they are interacting in a way that ambiguity is likely. They're mm-hmm. they're usually just props. Yeah, they usually right. just props receive for, the action. Prop, props for the normal sort of drama in theater of human life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's worth thinking about, too. Again, there's lots of subtleties, which I'm just going to elide over today because practically they dissolve, a sh- dissolve deserve um, a show of their own. But I just want to, you know, get through a list of these. And so Obviation was the last one on the list. All right. So... I don't know. Do you guys, I think these, these, uh, strategies are all, uh, useful. I think it depends on the language, which, which ones you're going to choose. And I, I don't see any reason why you couldn't have more than one of them. Though I think probably not necessarily more than two. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Every, I, I I mean I will say almost all languages will have conjugation or or conjunction re- reduction, right? Yeah. There's only a small number that don't do it, so you'll have to figure out the rules for that. But in other terms, like having logophore and obviation would probably be uh, overkill. I would hope so. So, yeah. I mean, maybe someone can come up with that, but it makes my brain itch a little to think about. It. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, the the main reason I put this on our list of topics is because I noticed myself first, carelessly and thoughtlessly, because I hadn't for for a long period in my conlanging history, I didn't think about this. I just reproduced English because mm-hmm. I didn't understand that other options were available. Uh huh. Right then, I get exposed to languages from other parts of the planet. I'm like, oh, switch reference. This this is completely strange and weird. And then obviation and logophore. So I just wanted to make these more widely known. Yes. Um, some of them are not going to lend themselves to shoehorning in later. Mm. Um, if a language is very well developed, I think that might be a little chaotic to tack one of these on. Um, yeah. Depending 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 on your grammar, some might be easier to do than others. Right. If you have a mostly, um. Analytic syntax. Logophore might be very easy to plunk down. You just need to add some new pronouns. But yeah. some but other things might be tricky. Obviation, mm. not so much. That's the most that's the most scary in terms of the changes you need to make. Yeah. yeah I think yeah, I was yeah. something I was doing once upon a time, I think was kind of like obviation, just didn't really know the term for it. Where I had, you know, there's the someone's at the, um I think it's obviation, where someone's at the center of your discourse, then you have you know, the other, if it's not them, you have other pronouns that refer to it. I just didn't know what it was called. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's typically not entirely separate pronouns, but some sort of morphology that attaches to things, at least in, in the Algonquin languages, which are the best studied languages yeah. that do it. It seems like this is one of the places where pick your strategy. Yeah. 
Yeah, and stick with it. And yes, there are, with any of these strategies, there are going to be uh, points where there will still be some sort of ambiguity. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've wanted to do, one of the long list of things I've wanted to do but haven't had time for, is we've got those great syntax test sentences. Is it Gary Shannon who has those? The fizz, fizz, wig, fizz gig? Oh, I've seen those. Yeah, they're great, but they're single sentence ones where I think it would be nice to have a a good set of subordinate and um, coordinate clause, coordinated clauses that mm. will really exercise your system of an Afro resolution, right? What are you going to do? Are you, if you're going to have logo four, if you're going to have switch reference, you're going to have obviation. It should be general enough to exercise all of those um, in such a way to make sure that you're not, you don't have giant gaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. That's, that's, that's something to work on. Some test sentences yeah. for those in my copious free time. I mean, you can come up with your own, Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the worst case scenario, you could just go to some of these papers and translate them into your language. Yeah. Uh, honestly, the, uh, the, there's not a whole lot of, uh, I don't have a whole lot of subordinate clauses in the donkey beater story, but it, it works a little bit for some of these things for just, uh, figuring out who is doing what to whom. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Always important that your language can keep those straight without constantly having to go, wait, what? It was, <laughs> it was, well, maybe I can write a story that, that, uh, can, uh, test these things as well. It oh, might, yeah. uh, take a little bit more work. That, that I think, story yeah, it would take more course, care, I think. Yeah. That story, of course, was, um, written to, I don't know, what was it? It was written to figure out I don't know. It was it was written to test other things. So, um, right, right. Uh, although it's ironic that um, a major fusion for certain syntax theories about anaphora um, talks about a donkey anaphora or the donkey pronoun. <laughs> <laughs> it, it comes from the, the famous example sentence: "Is every farmer who owns a donkey beats it." <laughs> Every human being who speaks English has no problem identifying it as referring to the donkey. Mm-hmm. But many theories of syntax, and this especially in the 60s and 70s, had a very, very hard time coming up with a formal way to represent this perfectly natural, grammatical, easily understood sentence. So I just thought that was ironic that we had the donkey beater story when we have donkey pronouns and donkey and Afro. What? That's, that's, that's... Yes, Google donkey Why? pronoun, it's there. Why, why would, um, what, what, like to me, I think the explanation is obvious. It is the donkey because it is a less animate, uh, thing. Well, then you should write a paper and show how they were all foolish. I suspect, (laughs) I suspect the issue is more complex than that, which is why there, I guess there must be something, people writing papers about it, something, something about that that can be argued against. I have to read these papers and figure out. I suspect it had something to do with the hierarchical nature of sentence representation. I don't know. I'm just guessing. Uh, Again, if someone knows, they can tell us because it's, I don't know. I like the, I just like the donkey sentences. <laughs> Not the sentence itself, which is very cruel, but just the phrase, the donkey sentence. Uh, I'll see. I'll see if I can write another story. I don't know if it'll be a donkey story, but yeah, uh, we just leave the poor donkeys alone. 
(laughs) (laughs) But why don't we move along to our feedback? All right. And talk about that. First of all, I want to do a feed, a very short one. This is from Robert. And he says, I like the new format. I think it will keep the show going strong for longer. I look forward to the more more manageable episodes. Keep up the good work. Now, he also called I, us dudes. Dear I, dudes. I liked that. Yes, dear dudes. <laughs> now, <laughs> I have that. That was the only email we got about the new format for the episode. We got some less positive feedback from uh, forum posts and comments. But nobody's... I don't think anybody really hates it, but it's like there's some people who were a little disappointed that we didn't have super long episodes anymore. And it's I just, just kind tiring. Of, it's just tiring people. I mean, they're fun sometimes, but they they're hard. We'll we'll do better when we have <laughs> when they're not so long. Yeah, I just want to say that it's it's great. It's 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 fun when things sort of go long just because we're having fun with it. Mm-hmm. But uh. It's, I will, will say, and I've said this in, um, on forums and such, that it's not just about people who complained about, um, the long episodes, the reason that we did this. It's also about when we have a long episode, it messes with our schedules sometimes. <laughs> and yes. also, you know, two hour episode can, uh, uh, could could make me late for work or something. Um, I think if we have other shows when we have guests that mm-hmm. by splitting things up that you know maybe we'll have another two hour episode or two. It's just that then we can really talk with someone at length. We don't have to try to crowd in sort of interview stuff, which is intrinsically really interesting to hear another conlanger talk about what they're up to do. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, versus first we have to do a topic, then we have to do the interview with their conlanger. It's, it's just. Yeah, that gives was us more breathing space. That was a little bit uh wonky when we were interviewing. We were having the creator of our featured conlang on, and we happened to have them on for the the conversation about the topic. That felt awkward to me uh, a little bit. I mean, anyway, the 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 one the Dothraki episode with building a lexicon it fit together. But anyway, yeah. So I I. I just want to say it's it's to make things more manageable for us as well, and it, and uh, it and uh, I I realize that you know it's a change that some people don't like as much, but it it will help us to keep pumping out episodes every week. Yeah. Um, so let's move on. Uh, we have another much longer email that I'm not going to read the whole thing. But uh, this is from Joe Shaleen, uh, I guess. Thanks for including the IPA of your last name. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm presuming since it's it's an English name that the the uh, the the schwa is not the, in the stressed syllable. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yes, yeah. IPA for pronunciations is good for us. Uh, yes, and. Um, he says, I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now. Uh, he listens 
to the new episode on Monday, then again on Friday, and random ones in between. <laughs> so holy <laughs> cow, he listens all to us a lot. Maybe right. maybe some some other podcasts. Um, he started in with French in high school, then Klingon and ASL in college, and uh, I just wanted to say you guys will rock. This is one thing that caught my attention. He says, one thing that frustrates me is every time you talk about Klingon Hall, you play the crap from the show, not real Kling- Klingon Hall. Need a good song in Klingon? Here's a link. And I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes. Maybe I'll put the that song after the episode. I haven't actually listened to it yet. But uh, <laughs> is, it the, is it the Klingon rapper? <laughs> I don't I know. know. Yeah. Um, but I thought, I just thought it was funny that, uh, that, uh, we have a Klingon purist that does, takes the random amateurs as better. No, I think that's natural and expected. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way things ought to be. Instead of the, the canon stuff, which, I, yeah. yeah, it makes, makes sense actually, because, uh, Actor performance in Klingon for Star Trek is is not very good. It's a mixed <laughs> bag. How about that? Yeah, it's uh, there's there's um and but it is interesting that he's like this is the real Klingon. Um, <laughs> and I also like that he he insists on calling it Klingon Hall. Uh, yes. So and then he also. Lastly, gave us a suggestion to bring a uh, a newbie on with a like a his his new language and do like workshop with this person to 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 show people some some things that can be fixed. Mm. I don't know if that's the most appropriate episode concept. It's certainly something we can think about and and see if somebody wants to offer that offer to uh have us do that for them but uh i don't know it it seems like an odd thing to do as an episode necessarily oh i you know i think it could be fun like <laughs> once a year or something like that if somebody is feeling bold yes um, if somebody if somebody really feels like oh um can we is it you need somebody with a thick skin to uh to volunteer for this because if when we when we find new language stuff we sometimes yell about it. <laughs> <laughs> Which anyone who's going to volunteer for this is going to know that. I don't think that's going to be a surprise. I'm like why why are your verbs perfectly regular, right? They, we have our our own little things. We have our own little occupations and preoccupations and everyone knows what those are. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be a surprise. I think that part of it also is that it's kind of like um, if you go into an art workshop and there's this wonderful painter who's leading it. I mean, sure, he may say this is crap, but that doesn't really matter because I think, sure, he might say this is style. This is not um, technically correct or this may not be what is t- typically done. But conlanging, just like this art example, is more, I think, about what you see as good and what you see as beautiful. What we give as our feedback, if this were to come about, would be... It's not, you know, the final word. We may even disagree among us with what's unusual or what's what should or should not, quote unquote, be done. Yeah. 
Well, I so, mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's not like we're authorities, right? Exactly, I mean, we yeah. have various degrees of experience, and if you want to be more naturalistic, mostly is what we focus on, then listening to us might be useful because we've thought about it possibly longer than a beginner. Oh. And that, that's not surprising or interesting yeah. or shocking. I think. Um, but I, if you don't make those kinds of languages, there's no reason to care what we say. Yeah. I well, mean, we can I mean, so we've seen before. But. Yeah. Right, if somebody right. wants us to workshop their language, then that, then sure. Come on the show. We will, we'll, <laughs> we'll uh, do it maybe once in a while, as yeah. William said, but um, we'll have to think about it. Like yeah, we'll, we'll have to think but, about it. Um, but and we won't we won't yell and scream at you. I, I was just no. I was just saying, you know. But don't ever yell and scream. We just we we might get a little excited about certain things, but um, but I, you know, it could be a useful exercise. I don't know. It's what well, we could do. Also, I'm sorry. An episode. Uh, and was, huh? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Oh. I was just going to say that what we could do also is if someone sends in a comline and maybe you could do it like anonymously and we critique that and maybe that way the noob isn't or the, the fledgling comlanger is not exposed <laughs> to direct heat, but people can see what we saw on that and they can mm-hmm. have, you know, it's, it's still having the same feeling, but it doesn't put the, the sacrificial lamb on the, on the podium. Uh, so. That's, that's true. Maybe, but then I, the... honestly, so when, when I met the, the conlang listener, the Conlangery mm-hmm. listener a few weeks ago, he did have his laptop there and we did talk a little bit about his language. I think it is much more pleasant to converse with someone rather than send your baby off into the <laughs> void for people to comment on without ever. I mean, I think it would just be more fun mm-hmm. for yeah. someone to come on and just sort of rap with us. I think it might depend you know, on the person ability. Yeah, well, obviously it, did. Yeah, it depends on. It, it would be more food. fun because, like, it's always more fun to have someone on the show to talk about their language, but yeah. I think especially if we were actually going to seek out a language that we wanted to workshop, mm-hmm. I'd kind of want the person on to defend themselves. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, but, I was just thinking of if there's this little shy person who was doing conlang and they really would love for, for us to give our comments on it and you know really want to have their baby up there and being poked and prodded and vivisected in front of them. But maybe they don't want to have to, you know, be up front if they're kind of more of a, you know, shy person. So I was just saying. Well, that. then they should come out. to Worldcon and grab me, and we can go talk. Yeah, the <laughs> the, the shy people, I think, um, might not even want to send it into us if you're if you are that sort of anxious about things because you might not uh, like you might um, have problems with us. Uh, dissecting your noobling in in public, your but, system um, in public. Yeah, I, didn't, yeah. I mean, we just, just this is problem. a hobby. This is a hobby. This isn't brain surgery. This isn't rocket science. We're just talking. Yes, this sounds natural. Yes, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could make that. I mean, it's right. we have no authority. We're just talking about stuff we do for fun. And I mean, we we're obviously serious about it, but at the same time, I don't think we need to get too precious either. Right. I don't know. The the the. This this discussion went on for a while. I think this is something that we could think about mm-hmm. off the show a little bit. But sure. Uh, and if yeah. someone hears this and is eager, let us know. Yeah, if you if you want us to <laughs> to actually do it as a do like a workshop episode featuring your conlang, and you want to come on the show, you know, go ahead email conlanger at gmail dot com, and 
Oh. You know what we should do? We should, we should get someone on and we should invent a language in the show. Oh, that'd be cool. Oh, yeah. It could be disastrous be because there are few people more fixated on their own aesthetic decisions than conlangers. <laughs> you know who would be a fun uh, person to do that with? Uh, get David on. David, sure. Um, I think, doesn't Cy Emery sometimes do this when he does conlang presentations? Cy, we haven't had Cy I, on the show ever. We should. So it's, yes. like making, it's like making a test tube baby in a lab. <laughs> um, <laughs> by the way, his name is is just Psy now. Oh, that's right. The Emrys is gone. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, Joe, thank you for the yes. Thank mm-hmm. thank for you for the very thought provoking ideas in your email. All our email comes to conlanger at gmail dot com. It's also where you send those. Greetings at the top of the show. I yes. I am emphasizing that because today I ran out and I actually Oops. had to like try to put out the call. I eventually I was talking to Bianca earlier on Skype and she made one for me. So, uh, I was <laughs> uh she's doing good. Uh, yes. she finally moved into her her new house. Awesome. So, um, but. That's what you will hear at the beginning of 61. Uh, I don't have one for this episode yet. So we will see what what goes on. uh, But just keep sending those in so that I know that I have enough for the episode. (laughs) And other than that, I'm going to go... William, do you have any final words of wisdom? Not this week. Uh... Hmm. Uh, Mike? Um, nothing new, just try new things and don't be afraid and all the, pretty much the same as always, just awesomeness. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> Do those sound like words of wisdom? Because I'm not sure they are. <laughs> they sound kind of half-baked to me. <laughs> Emphasis on baked. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say happy Conlon. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured Conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus pages, and a whole lot more. Questions, comments, and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com. You can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header. Please see the contribute page for details. Thanks for listening. Someone has validated our decision. Are you right next to our road, Mike? No, but hang on one second. I think I did something just turn on. Yes. yes. Yeah, hang on one sec. I'll turn the thermometer up higher. Hang on one sec. Wow. Um, the reason this bell checker doesn't re- recognize nascent is because he misspelled it. Okay, so it was a misspelling. I have just fixed it. Hooray. <laughs> ah. You fixed his email? I'll decide whether to label it practicum.
or Gertrude. <laughs> That's okay. okay. <laughs> you do not need to explain how the internet moves data around right now. I hear okay. like crinkling of like chocolate paper or something. Oh, that's me playing with this packet of Chinese tea. Ah. What kind of Chinese tea? Um I don't even know. Like the front label is in seal script, so I can't really read it. <laughs> Good. It's just something that uh, my brother-in-law brought back from China. It was like a gift to him, and he gave it to me a few years ago, and I still have not drunk it. Yeah, maybe it's too late for that. Russell, Russell, Russell. Somebody's playing with papers. I'm not playing, I'm working. (laughs) So that was a William Lecture episode. <clears throat> yeah, but, well, no, I think we. Yeah, it was. No, you guys asked. You guys said plenty of stuff too. I mean, I'm, yeah, it was a little mm-hmm. bit luxury, but the only thing that I um about the, having the noobs on, and I'm not sure if this will even become a, a, an issue, but I don't want it to be. You know, like we have like a waiting list, and basically we turn into a, you know, yeah, 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 yeah language. That's why, right. I, I actually, I mean, that's why I said maybe once a year we don't. Need yeah, it to have and that's kind of why I was I throughout the idea of, you know, maybe not having the person on there because it would stick with the having a having a conlang every week or having a conlang every other one, but it doesn't put the pressure on us to pick which of our fans is the best or good enough to go on the show. <laughs> Two times Bubkiss is still Bubkiss. So I request that we pick something not too complicated for next week because it will it's time again for um Denny and Steve's gigantic summer party, so I expect possibly to be maybe a little delicate and hungover. Oh, okay. Hopefully not hungover, but I you know, will not be in my normal rested self. And by the way, um, I'm in Newark, um, so if you've heard those planes, I've been trying to catch it and mute it as it goes over, but like, oh, that was that over. that's it. Huh? Yeah, so if I tried to catch it and mute it before it got too loud... But we're right by Newark Airport, so if you heard that, that's what that was. I've been in Newark Airport. It was a bad experience. Okay, so to hear myself described as a syntax guy makes my brain hurt. (laughs) (laughs) 